So today we're on week two of Faces of Africa, and uh, we have with us uh, Dr. Antenna, and he'll be talking about his work in healthcare service delivery in conflict and post-conflict areas. Um, we're really excited to hear what you have uh, to share with us today, Dr. Antenna, and um, let's begin. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ifoma Mugwe, for this uh, opportunity to, to present and speak about this important topic. Uh, um, as focus of as the faces of Africa and public health in humanitarian crisis, healthcare service delivery in the conflict and post-conflict areas uh, is something that uh, mostly humanitarian and uh, the existing health system is trying to, to do. So um, I think from the experience that I have working with in parts in Ethiopia and in South Sudan and in similar contexts, I would be uh, happy to share what I learned and what I experienced. I would like to thank you once again for giving me uh, this great opportunity. So, I, it has been uh, a common incident and um, phenomenon to hear several kinds of humanitarian crises globally and happening now and then. Um, I think we can proceed to the next slide. With the natural disasters such as flood, fire, landslide, cyclones, outbreaks being common as well as conflict, uh, armed conflict within countries or between uh, states and regions, as well as within uh, among ethnic groups and clans. The devastating consequence of uh, this conflict and related disasters depends on the resilience of the communities and uh, it, it impacts with existing structures and systems the impact can be magnified, or that if a resilient system is there, then it can absorb the different shock. Still, no country, no region, no state, or no uh, local community is immune from experiencing those, be it natural disasters or conflict. Next slide, please. As you can see, I tried to um, see what's on the New York Times and, and the Washington Post, uh, hearing the, the recent uh, issues between Russia and Ukraine, um, what has been reported recently with Turkey uh, attacking the northern part of uh, Syria and um, what, you, what we experienced in Ethiopia and what we have witnessed uh, over the years in Syria. So you, you can find lots of similar stories uh, if, if you try to see beyond the mainstream medias and what's being officially reported, flooding, landslides, even if you go and see the common websites that uh, humanitarian experts and uh, practitioners try to share their experience on the relief wave, you find many of those incidents 
that did not get coverage with uh, the New York Times or with um, the Washington Post or similar ones, but every day people are suffering as a result of this natural uh, or man-made uh, disasters. Next slide, please. So the public health impact of uh, a crisis, we can see it in two ways. One is the, the direct impact. As a result of those crises, we have consequences or impacts that are uh, a direct result of the, the crisis or the emergencies. And others are the indirect impact. We commonly witness injuries and also cases from the crisis itself. As an indirect impact, we have change in the living conditions. People are forced to leave the, the communities or the places that they are used to, and there is a forced dis displacement. And in those situations, as a result of lack of legal protection, uh, people are vulnerable uh, to different uh, uh, situations that would not happen otherwise. And decreased healthcare access is something that you witness as an indirect impact of uh, a crisis. So we can see it in two perspective. Uh, one from as a direct consequence that results in injury, disabilities, which has a long-term uh, impact on the health system itself, even after uh, the relief recovery and the development phases. Next slide. So with conflict, what happens is it's, it's basically denying the basic uh, rights to, to survival. And in those situations, something that you would consider as a basic for a human to, to survive and thrive are withdrawn or withheld and access to those social services and others are limited. Next slide. So in, in communities, we have the very, the, the vulnerable. In fact, uh, everyone is affected, but the level of uh, impact or effect on the different members of the communities varies. Uh, in, in humanitarian crisis or conflict situation, the, the ones that are most affected are women, children, elderly, and disabled. Children are um, the most affected uh, because uh, the, their rights for protection is taken and they depend on adults and others for the basic uh, uh, necessities. And women also are vulnerable, uh, which we will be covering on uh, my, uh, in few minutes after a couple of discussion on um, what, uh, how it affects our system. So it affects differently women, children, the elderly and the disabled. Next slide. So 
as a public health uh, professionals and practitioners, we know the cost of building a, a resilient health system. It takes years and lots, lots of investment in order to, to build a, a strong health system. As you all know, we have the six building blocks, the WHO building blocks, uh, starting with leadership in governance, the healthcare financing, health workforce, medical product technologies, information and research, and that result in the service delivery. So the disruption in the health system all this and having an investment for the health system building takes years but uh, damaging or disrupting the available infrastructure uh, doesn't take long so what it does is uh, as a result of strengthening the health system with improved access and coverage and with quality and safety we have the outcomes such as improved health responsiveness, improved efficiency. What has been built over the years can be reversed in, uh, in days or in months, uh, for that matter, in, in years. We can witness what has happened in, in Syria, in um, Yemen, and in, most, in, in Africa. You know, we have lots of examples that, that shows the already weakened health system further being um, uh, affected and disrupted. So if we try to see how the leadership and governance is affected, there would be um, an increased demand uh, on the leadership and governance to redirect the resources and the focus and priority changes with, uh, with conflict and similar crisis. So um, the, the small resource that's allocated to the system as part of the GDP can be redirected in particularly within the situation uh, of conflict to, towards you know, uh, building the military and others. So similar, it goes in similar vein with the healthcare financing. So every you know, dollar that's being invested can be redirected as we all know the amount that countries allocate, particularly in Africa, is minimal as percent of their G GDP. The health workforce as well. So if you can move from the slides uh, to the next slide. I, I think one more. <laughs> yes, so health workforce, they are, um, we can lose them usually the those that are from the local community would be the ones that are staying but mostly when you have uh, other expats or any other uh, uh, special those with specialized skills that you move them to support until you build the system would be relocated and also they may lose their life 
and they are uh, stressed in a way that they are not able to even provide care for others. And obviously they also may have families who, should, who they should be uh, taking care. So with the medical product technologies, the supply chains usually are interrupted and uh, it results in the uh, lack or shortage of uh, basic uh, medical supplies and uh, the damage on the existing equipment all also makes difficult for the health workforce who want to stay and provide the service in those situations. As I mentioned earlier, uh, especially with, um, with in a conflict situation, with the leadership and governance, the willingness of the, the leadership and uh, those that are managing in terms of maintaining neutrality and uh, withholding the basic uh, services can be an issue. And also um, there can be lack of capacity. Infrastructures are usually targeted these days. And in fact, this has happened in the past. That's why we have the international laws and humanitarian principle that, uh, that prohibit uh, you know, at attacking health facilities and health personnel during uh, this kind of situations. So what we find at the end is uh, the service delivery is weakened. People will not be have, having access to the essential or to the basic services. And those conditions that can be easily treated can, can progress and uh, affect uh, the, the community or uh, those uh, who are residing in the communities if they are staying there. And with the forced migration, setting up and delivering those basic services could, could be challenging up until you know, there is a lead time to organize, to identify and understand the context, what should be delivered on, in what priority. Next slide. This is uh, a very good uh, framework that uh, a kind of a web that I, I was able to identify uh, from a study and it, it's uh, conducted in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and it's, it's basically, it's the pathway through which uh, insecurity affects the health service delivery. And it has kind of three constraints that can be raised. One is uh, reduced mobility and access. The other is violence and um, reduced fi financial resources. This all goes into affecting the service availability and the quality of work. But without having the workforce that's in both in quantity and in quality, or without having the necessary drugs or equipment that are available, delivering those services is challenging uh, for the obvious reason. So with regard to reduced mobility and access, you can have increased cost of transport, transportation, ambulances cannot be reaching patients or for their transfer or transportation and less supervision or training. So in, in those conditions, you will not be you know, uh, able to build the capacity of the health workforce 
and uh, health workers might not be willing to stay uh, and work longer hours for the sake of security and other issues. So there can be fear and pillaging, resistance uh, to invest or stock up piles, which are very critical as well we have seen earlier on. So reduced financial resources also exposes to uh, uh, you know, reduce capacity to, to pay and uh, for salaries or any related uh, motivation. So when, when you are trying to deliver during conflicts, the healthcare care service delivery should consider what the main constraints are, the different pathways and how, you know, you can avert the situation in uh, availing, you know, by availing uh, basic or uh, essential services and at least a minimum uh, quality of care for those who are in desperate need. Next slide. The constraints usually raised are uh, violence, mobility restriction, financing, and other resources as well. Next slide. So, this is one thing I found on uh, the WHO uh, website, in fact, on their Twitter page that was posted recently. And it talks about protect healthcare, and it also emphasizes health as a human right, and attack on the healthcare violate international law and endanger lives. Health workers, hospitals, ambulances should never be targeted. So, we have heard, I'm sure most of us heard, what has happened in, in Ukraine recently, attack on the, the healthcare facilities, on the health workers and others. Next slide. So when we are trying to uh, deliver service in, in conflict and post-conflict areas, what is our goal? That's the main thing that we should address. So if uh, in those situations, we, we are aiming to reduce uh, excess mortality and morbidity by delivering a life-saving inter intervention. So the humanitarian community has this a threshold uh, for emergency threshold with a crude mortality rate of if it's more than one per 10,000 population per day or under five mortality, crude mortality rate of greater than two per 10,000 population per day, then uh, this is uh, in absence of any other baseline. This is uh, the emergency threshold. So uh, that, that, that ultimately requires uh, re response or a doubling in the, when, when you have a known baseline doubling or increased on uh, crude mortality rate and under five crude, crude mortality rates are the emergency threshold globally. So the service delivery goal in, in conflict as well as post-conflict is about delivering life-saving intervention or a health response uh, to, to prevent or reduce excess mortality and morbidity. Next slide. So when we face, uh, when we are asked to, to respond, sometimes 
different kind of requests may come. But relief, there are uh, building a health system or any uh, rebuilding or reconstruction has its own phases. So as I mentioned earlier, during the actual conflict or during the post-conflict areas, we, our focus would be on life-saving and reducing the excess morbidity and mortality. But uh, with the different phases, that also changes with emergency relief phase, with the recovery and rehabilitation, and with, uh, with the development phases. So we, we may uh, be asked or tempted to provide a comprehensive service at early on, which usually is less likely that uh, that can be done because resources are limited for the obvious reasons that I mentioned earlier. So the focus would be on delivering essential services and saving life and uh, avoiding the, the needless uh, diseases. So we have to bear in mind, we, we can't build, rebuild or uh, the health system overnight and even the reconstruction or re the rehabilitation uh, takes time. And as we do, or as we try to deliver services, we have to consider the existing policies, guidelines, and uh, frameworks. So there are international humanitarian laws that guide our operation. And uh, in, uh, you know, uh, the International Committee of uh, the Red Cross uh, and Road Cre uh, Crescent Code of Conduct and in terms of accountability. So. There are uh, also coordination mechanisms and standards that uh, we have to follow. Next slide, if you want. So the, the, the common principles, the rights and duties in those con contexts are right to healthcare in the humanitarian context, right to life, not only right, right to life, but it is right to life with dignity or the right to protection and security and the right to receive the humanitarian assistance based on the need. So these are also the common principles and uh, rights and duties when we, we consider uh, healthcare services or any other services in, in conflict and post-conflict areas. Next slide. So um, one of the critical things in, in abiding by the international laws and uh, with the existing code of conduct, um, we have to demonstrate as a humanitarian worker or a, health, a healthcare worker, or as a, a leader in the health services by uh, demonstrating neutrality and impartiality. And that also protects, uh, you know, to a certain extent, avoid the damage that can be caused on the health workers, on the health facilities, the ambulances, and others, if we have if we demonstrate neutrality and impartiality. Some of the things that can be done as part of that is, you know, care for the wounded and the, the, the sick without this distinction, without showing any uh, uh, you know partiality, and ensuring the patient safety and confidentiality. We, we will be having access to different information, but we, we should not be uh, you know, supporting any of, uh, particularly in conflict, any of the, the, the parties. And also having a no open policy on those facilities. So we have uh, 
a host, we had a hospital that we were operating in post-conflict area in South Sudan in an area called Roma. So the facility was attacked and in fact, there was no explanation any of this was not applied, but it was a random attack on the health facility. So all the existing drugs and supplies were destroyed. The medical records are destroyed. The infrastructure and anything, all the expensive materials that were bought by organizations and the government was destroyed and looted. So there is no evidence that, you know, complying to this ones maybe, uh, you know, make you immune, but at least it just this, this kind of demonstrating neutrality and impartiality helps in, uh, you, know, you know, safeguarding or in protecting the, the, the health workforce or the facility. So there are lots of examples that can be uh, raised. Next slide. So we also have to uh, comply with, uh, in, in delivering services, we have, um, as we have mentioned earlier on, they have, people have the right to receive the minimum quality or the, minim, the, the bare minimum standard. So there are standards that were set by the humanitarian community, uh, as most of you know, is just the sphere standard for the different uh, services, including the health service, for the water and sanitation, for the uh, nutrition and uh, uh, for protection related activities. So there are lists of things that we have to abide and what we are doing can be measured again as though. So each, each of the different uh, services that we are providing have a minimum standard and also indicators to, to monitor. So it, it also creates a means of uh, accountability. Attending the coordination mechanisms is really important because we don't, we may not have a good knowledge of the landscape and things are changing so rapidly and we have to catch up with those change. So having coordination mechanisms, attending the cluster meeting, such as nutrition cluster meetings or health uh, cluster meetings, security, which all are very crucial in, in the service delivery and in a smooth delivery of programs. So uh, the attending coordination mechanisms also gives uh, uh, perspective and context. So the other thing that I would like to raise is uh, the service package. Next slide. So, So as I have mentioned earlier on, our focus during the, the conflict or early on the post-conflict time would be delivering essential uh, healthcare. This is because um, as people are uh, forced uh, or migrating or internally displaced or migrating uh, into a different location, there is a tendency to live together and overcrowded situation, having, uh, not having the basic sanitary and water access facilities uh, would, would expose to the, the common uh, communicable diseases with diarrhea, measles, and also cholera outbreak and uh, malnutrition, which can uh, also be an underlying cause for uh, and more vulnerability to other uh, diseases. So providing essential health care is, a, you know, a, a very important 
And we also have injuries and trauma care as a result of conflict or others. And mental health issue, very important. So it, as with, uh, with a crisis, there are extreme stressors that affects you know, uh, the, the mental health of individuals. So we have to also plan a mental health and psychosocial support along with delivering the essential health care. The non-communicable diseases and, and, and also the interruption of uh, longer-term treatments such as TB and HIV should be given a priority as part of the essential health care. Next slide. So we, we, we have different standards and um, as you, as you see the sphere standard handbook is something that you should have during the planning phase or during the implementation and even uh, in order to monitor what you have done. Uh, so particularly you have also a section in this book about the, the service delivery, what you have to comply, what are the standards, what do we mean by access and what do we mean by the minimum uh, pay requirement and others are thoroughly and well explained. So when, when you try to deliver healthcare services in, in conflict and post-conflict, these are the standards that, that you have to, to maintain. Next. So the, there are challenges, uh, you know, there is a need to respond to the situation, the diversion of resources at where uh, the health office level, county uh, health department at the lower level and also priorities change and the cost of rebuilding and reconstruction also has a, a huge impact on the redirecting of the health budget. And also what we have to bear in mind is donors have their own requirement and different interests. And we have to uh, be able to maintain you know, their requirements and uh, allocation of resources also depends on interest. So, we have to be also considerate of what donors are expecting the state or the world health office or any of the, the key stakeholders in this service delivery in, 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 in conflict and post-conflict areas. So there are challenges that we have to anticipate and prepare ourselves. Next slide. So in delivering healthcare services in, in these situations, there is a critical factor. Time is a critical factor. If we don't act, if we delay a certain intervention, that, that in the absence of that intervention causes you know, severe consequences and uh, a magnitude that we would not have if we had delivered those services on time. And also timing with you know, the, the movement patterns or, you know, sometimes uh, uh, when there is, uh, uh, you know, a time for uh, seizing uh, by the wiring parties, you have that, yeah, you can use those, those times in order to deliver. So even pre-positioning the supplies, the materials that you need requires, uh, you know, being vigilant on, on time and it demands to work around the clock. So, Anything can happen at any time. So uh, working on around the clock and it's not, you know, an 8 a.m., 5 p.m. thing. So anytime anything can come. So 
whenever there is a window of opportunity that has to be tapped. And it also requires in planning, replanning of in how to deliver those services and understanding the, the movement patterns of communities, where they have migrated or where they are displaced and what they have and what they don't have, what priority has needs they, they have in the current situation and understanding those and continuously planning and replanning I'm assessing, you know, the situation uh, is a very critical uh, thing that has to be done, but that has to be done in time. If if we take extended time on assessing the situation, then the, the response uh, to those uh, situation would be delayed, which which doesn't help the, the communities and the actual uh, beneficiaries of your intervention. And as a humanitarian worker or as one uh, delivering health services, following the security uh, procedures is critical. And it's you have to note that it's only when you are alive that you can provide those uh, basic or critical health needs uh, and um, services, and, and also following a sound uh, any evacuation plan. Your organization or when you are placed there has to be something that, that you have to follow strictly. I had uh, an experience in South Sudan where uh, I think it's back in 2013 or 2015, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that the that, that, that year, uh, I had a team working in the remote part. And uh, it was, uh, I remember I left um, Juba on, on Thursday and um, traveling for another meeting in, in Kenya. Uh, and uh, in the, the, next, the next day, it was uh, war broke out after you know the, the president and the vice president were uh, having discussions and that, that that had happened so our team was on the field not ready for anything and uh, but we had an evacuation plan but it was too difficult in order to get uh, the team out of there because there is no transport no uh, available means no fly zone nothing so we, we had to, it was a very stressful time. So those situations can, can come. So having a sound evacuation plan, what would you do if there is no ground transportation or if there is no you know, uh, flights or no, if uh, it's declared no fly zone, what, what would you do for, for uh, your team as a leader can be something that um, you, you have to plan well, well in advance. So it's not, a situation that you would predict, it, it seems uh, normal, but very volatile and fragile. So you have to, to always follow um, procedures and evacuation plans uh, when, when you work on those uh, in conflict and post-conflict areas. Next slide. So situation monitoring, frequent update, collaboration with stakeholders, uh, other like-minded organizations, at attending uh, coordination meetings. These are very important. And as you do this, always, you have to also be thinking who's going to fund the work that you are doing. There are a joint funding mechanisms, the health pool fund or the common humanitarian fund that, that gives uh, by the United Nations Organization for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or the USAID uh, OFTA, Office for Disaster Assistance, and others. And you have to be uh, 
also as you intervene and deliver the services, it is very important how you can secure funds and uh, maintain the intervention or the service delivery. Uh, so being you know, uh, very watchful about what opportunities are there in order to deliver the basic services or expand once, once the situations improve. Next slide. I think I'm taking more time, sorry. So uh, why respond when you are at risk? Uh, this is, we, we lose many humanitarians and healthcare workers as a result of disasters and conflict, but regardless of those, we still have, you know, humanitarian workers or healthcare workers uh, responding on the ground in, in the, at the face of uh, these and, you know, eminent diseases or disabilities. So if the love for the people and the people around you, that, that's a motivating and driving force. And the, 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 uh, if, if you see children that are in the midst of crisis in the face of your children or your loved ones, you'd be happy to, to help, to offer a helping hand. Uh, so it is a calling or serving a higher purpose in life. So if, if you talk to many of the, the humanitarian workers or those who are working in, uh, in a conflict or post-conflict areas, and apart from the social responsibilities that they, they have within the communities and others that are coming, knowing the risk, delivering services, when you ask them what you commonly found is love. Thank you. I think the next slide. Thank you very much. I know I have taken more time than I was, I was given. Not a problem. Thank you for this great presentation. Um, I would like to open um, the virtual floor for questions um, that the audience may have. Um, while folks are thinking of questions, I would say, um, Dr. Antenna, one of the things, like one of the reasons why APHN was excited to have you back again was, um, I know that you were here at Hopkins in person a few weeks ago to talk about your work with um, IPHCE and the activities going there. And towards the end of that, you mentioned, um, there's a discussion where you started to give quite a bit of anecdote to your on the field experience um, in different settings. So I'm curious, or if there are, you know, moments that have stand out in your career when you think about like what healthcare delivery delivery looks like in conflict and post-conflict areas that have been like the most notable um, and what lessons you've learned through those experiences. Um, and what, you know, if you had to do it over again, like what would you do different? or what advice would you use from those experiences to provide us here um, with, with tips as we think about what to do in, when we're facing these types of situations? Oh, you're on mute. Sorry. So, um... I think these are very important uh, questions. With the healthcare service delivery is the most notable moment. You know, most of my experience have been, you know, one time I had to travel to uh, Somalia and, uh, you know, we, are, we were shipping uh, uh, 
medical equipment and trying to build a system in Garawi Hospital and uh, Puntland. So, the, you know, just before a day, I, I was going to travel. Then there was this blast uh, as a, you know, closer to our hospital. So it was, I, I felt like being on the ground, but uh, still what's notable uh, during the impact that you are making, your presence matters. You know, the, the, when you touch the hands of the children, the, the excitement that you get, or uh, when you, you talk to the women and when, you know, they come person, you know, to thank you personally, as if you are the ones who are doing everything, but it really is like, um, for me, I, I remember one time traveling, I planned to travel to Gambela in Ethiopia, where the next day, after talking to the community, please help us and all those questions and requests. I didn't promise anything, but I would try to do what I can from the organization and, you know, but the next day I was not able to 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 try to travel that, that to that particular area. I, I wished, you know, I, I have done that earlier on because time and, and when, when you deliver, you see the smiles on the face of every, uh, every kids in the communities. And um, so I think those are the most notable moments that, that I have. And I, I risked my life many times. Like, you know, in fact, I was not married and having kids at, at that time, maybe. I, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure if, if I would be doing that right now. But that's, you know, knowing, you know, I, have to, I had to travel to this particular area with the convoys and the military on, you know, sitting on personnel, sitting armored people, sitting on your uh, vehicle and uh, trying to protect you. But what, what happens? Like you, you can be shot, uh, shot and dead, killed at, at that spot. So, but we had taken a risk, you know, regardless, and uh, we were able to deliver those services. But those, those uh, at the end, what I got was, you know, the small intervention. That those are things that you don't count as very important or crucial, very basic. It, it, it creates smile on the faces of people who are needlessly suffering. And um, what would I would uh, do uh, uh, different? I, I think for, for most part, um, I, I uh, like it's a very difficult question because I, I thought I was in, totally invested in then my base in delivering services all that time. So uh, maybe ha having more resources, I was invested on implementing the program, delivering the actual services. In that time, I missed opportunities for funding. So I would have kept my eyes closed on, you know, how I can sustain uh, the service delivery at the same time, um, uh, getting the services out there. So. That's fine balance I, I, I missed uh, at one time, but luckily because we had done, our name was out there, it was easy for us to, to get another funding by the time that was uh, was over. So I would keep an eye on uh, post uh, service delivery as well as uh, uh, securing funding. That's why I, I'm sharing you uh, on the previous slides about talking about securing funds and timing. Did I answer my your question, Ifoma? If you know. Yeah, yeah. No, you definitely answer the questions. I think uh, the I, the importance of we do what we do. I think it's it's for a love of humanity, and I think you you said yeah. that quite nicely. And and you're right. I think sometimes we get very caught up in 
in what we're like succeeding in the task at hand that those opportunities to make sure that we're sustainable after accomplishing the task is a really important um, take home message. Um, so I'm curious, are there any other questions in the audience? Um, sorry, I just muted myself. I think the question I wanted to ask was more or less the last point uh, Dr. Zawadi spoke about, which was financing. So in terms of, you know, we're in the middle of a crisis, a humanitarian crisis. Um, our ministries are already constrained, trying to make sure that essential health services, primary health care is smooth and running. And then we have a huge outbreak um, or a major disaster with uh, critical healthcare needs. Um, so, I mean, I was, I know he already spoke about it, but that was, that was the question I was going to ask. I was wondering how, how um, governments, let me say, or ministries of finance um, could be approached, or if, if he has experienced something like that, if you could share with us how, when such um, an incident happened, um, how they were able to mobilize funds, um, not really from donors, um, but actually from the from the um, from the government to respond to these emergencies, funds and supplies, etc. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, my most of my experience has been, you know, uh, trying to mobilize resources from uh, the the humanitarian communities and you know, foreign governments in those kind of bilateral and multilateral organization. And in this context, usually the, the Ministry of Finance or the government had limited resources in terms of financing or budgeting. But we had approached, you know, the available, uh, you know, uh, supplies and uh, what is out there in order to want to, to transport where that is needed. You may find, you know, uh, for example, the ready-to-use food in one central location, but there is no way that you can uh, the, the the government have the funds to to transport. But the government you can ask the government to to give you those those uh, ready-to-use therapeutic foods, and I, I think those supplies uh, you can get or secure. So I usually find governments try to 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 accord the necessary support but they have differing priorities. And also uh, these situations are demanding of And I know you're signed in on another device. We can't hear you with your current device. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah, I, I don't know where uh, you guys missed, you know, what, uh, I, did you hear me all or shall I repeat what I was saying? So I was basically saying, you know, if the government has the, you know, the supplies or whatever resources that they have, they are willing to give you and you may have, uh, you know, to find a way to transport help in transporting, you know, what's available already 
within their stock, you know, to the needed site. So, uh, but that's the only experience I had, not in terms of, you know, having a, a funding or financing from the government side. Thank you. Great, are there any other questions in the audience? Okay, um, if not, I, I would like to thank Dr. Antenna for uh, once again um, working with uh, the African Public Health Network and really sharing your experience in healthcare service delivery and in conflict and post-conflict um, areas. I think, you know, um, as I mentioned when we saw in person some weeks ago that um, the work that the IPHC team is doing is uh, phenomenal. And it's always great to find avenues where we, um, as a community here at Hopkins can engage with your team, um, especially in such an important topic when we think about um, public health and humanitarian crisis and, um, and thinking about what we as students at the School of Public Health um, should be in mind when thinking about what life is like on the field. So thank you for, for sharing um, your advice and your experience uh, and your wisdom. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, Ifoma. It was a great pleasure. And um, uh, thank you for the opportunity once again. Awesome. All right. So with that, um, for those in the audience, please be on the lookout for upcoming talks from APHN. Um, as we continue on in our series with public health and humanitarian crisis. Um, we do have a talk coming up on Friday at 2 p.m. It's the same Zoom link. Um, and I think that will also be another exciting and engaging uh, conversation um, where we'll specifically be talking about, let me pull out the title. We'll be talking about the humanitarian crisis and public health challenges in Sudan um, with Dr. Kadir uh, Dalok from um, Oregon Health and Science University, where he currently serves as the Director of Advocacy Office of the Sudanese American Physicians Associate, Association. So um, again, I think it's going to be an exciting conversation, a great time to really think about what public health and humanitarian crisis is. And we look forward to seeing you guys virtually on Friday. Um, and for those who are on campus um, at Hopkins, please be on the lookout for our, our social night, which is occurring Friday night as well. Um, we'd love to have you, Dr. Antenna. We're doing Flavors of Africa. So we'll be uh, enjoying meals, food from throughout. So thank you once again, and looking forward to seeing you guys virtually on Friday. Um, and for those who will be around in person, we'll see you then. Bye. Thank you bye -bye. and bye.